first reading for this morning is the gospel verse from John 14. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, God. to God. The next reading for this morning is found in Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, son of Jephon and Gamara, son of Hiliak, whom, the, whom King Zedekiah of Judah had sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. To God. Let us pray. Jesus Christ, our King, bring down all our false lords until you alone reign. Amen. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as you uh, know, if you were listening at the beginning of the service and during the children's sermon, today is the final Sunday of the church year. From June up until today, we have been making our way through the long season after Pentecost, and next Sunday we will begin the season of expectant waiting that we call Advent. It's sort of like New Year's Eve with fewer fireworks. 
Also, it's the day that many Christians observe as Christ the King Sunday, or if you prefer more formal titles, the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. Catchy, isn't it? Well, despite what its name may imply, this is not a particularly ancient festival of the church. In fact, it was only in the time after World War I that when nations and governments were becoming more secular and demanding more and more absolute allegiance, particularly in places like Germany and Italy, that the Roman Catholic Church found it necessary to set aside a day to remember that Jesus Christ alone is the true ruler and king to whom we owe complete loyalty. That as Christians, no cause, no nation, no government can rightly demand our first allegiance, but must always take second place to our allegiance to Jesus Christ. So it may seem a bit odd with this celebration of God's powerful rule that our reading today from Jeremiah is not about the triumph of God's people, but rather finds them at their weakest. In a letter written from an unpopular prophet, to those Israelites who had been forcefully exiled from their own land. In fact, if there was ever a time in the Old Testament that God's chosen people might question whether God indeed reigned over the world, well, this would be it. At the time Jeremiah is writing this letter, some 600 years before Jesus, the mighty and prosperous kingdom of David and Solomon is a distant memory. It has been almost 400 years since the northern kingdom of Israel split off from the southern kingdom of Judah, and it has been more than a century since the Assyrian Empire annihilated the northern kingdom of Israel and laid siege to Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. Since that time, the Assyrian Empire has crumbled, and the dominant power in the region is now the Babylonian Empire, and they are lording that power over Judah. Just a few years before Jeremiah wrote this letter, the Babylonians came to Jerusalem and they subdued it. They deposed the reigning king, Jeconiah, and they put a puppet ruler, Zedekiah, in his place. They took much of the golden decorations and worship implements out of the temple and carried them off to Babylon to fill the treasury of King Nebuchadnezzar. And they deported many of the wealthy, the rulers, the royal family, uh, the craftsmen from Jerusalem, and exiled them to live in Babylon. And just a few years after Jeremiah writes his letter, the Babylonians will return and finish what they started. Zedekiah, that puppet king, will attempt to rebel against Babylon, and the Babylonians will return in force and destroy Jerusalem, leveling its walls, burning down its temple and royal palace. They will carry off anyone of note in the city, leaving only the poorest to work the land and, of course, to pay taxes. And for the vast majority of those Judahites, or Jews, as they become uh, known, those who were taken into exile... This is the last they will ever see of their beloved Jerusalem. This is the context in which Jeremiah is writing this letter. And it is what he has to say in this time between these two Babylonian incursions that make him an unpopular prophet for his people. You see, after, even after the Babylonians had subdued Jerusalem, and even when their puppet king is ruling over Judah, the prevailing belief among the prophets and the priests 
seems to have been that God would not allow Jerusalem to fall completely. Surely the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was God above all other gods and nations, and so the Judahites knew that they would be victorious, even over so great and so powerful an enemy. In fact, in Jeremiah 28, just the chapter right before uh, where our reading came from, we hear of a conflict between Jeremiah and another prophet, Hananiah, about what God is going to do with the Babylonians. Hananiah, along with most of the other temple prophets, predicts that God will shortly break the Babylonians and that within a couple of years, everything that was stolen and everyone who was taken from Jerusalem will be returned. But Jeremiah has not been given such a pleasant word. And at the Lord's command, he rebukes Hananiah for making the people trust in a lie, for saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, then, is a double-edged letter. On the one hand, it is a letter full of hope, promising that God has not forgotten the exiles. And it includes one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible, Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, You probably recognized it in the reading. For surely I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm to give you a future with hope. But on the other hand, this letter takes away any hope that the Babylonians are soon going to be defeated. This is bad news for those who have not been exiled, those who are still in Jerusalem. It must have been terribly frustrating for them to hear Jeremiah encourage the exiles in Babylon not to resist, but to settle in, to work and pray for the benefit of their conquerors. Though the letter promises a hopeful future, that hopeful future is not an imminent one. For it will come only when Babylon's 70 years are completed. Though God is indeed still God, even over Babylon, it is God's will to allow Babylon to conquer what's left of Israel, to bring on them the judgment that had been prophesied by prophets like Habakkuk and now Jeremiah. You can see why this was an an unpopular word even if it did come with such a lovely promise of hope. It's no easy thing to welcome a promise, no matter how good, when that promise brings with it the destruction of everything else you had relied on. As I studied this passage this week, I couldn't help but hear echoes of our situation in the plight of the Judahites. Like the Judahites still in Jerusalem, we too as a nation think of ourselves as God's chosen, as having special divine protection, as being uh, and maybe the Christian nation, the shining city on a hill, the beacon of freedom and hope to the world. And yet we too are finding such notions called into question Not so much by empires without, although they are certainly playing a part, but by challenges within. Increasingly, more and more voices are calling into question just how free this beacon of freedom has truly been, especially if you're anything other than a white man. Just as some of us point to the very real progress that has been made through civil rights movements, and it is real progress, we arrive at a moment when outright White supremacy seems emboldened to try and become mainstream again. 
and our horrific history of racial violence suddenly seems not so far removed as it once did. Or we are confronted by the current and persistent cycle of accusations and revelations of the sexual exploitation of women by powerful and often beloved men, including three out of our five most recent presidents. Or the current demonization of immigrants, legal or otherwise, which seems a far cry from President Reagan's ideal of doors open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That beacon may still shine, but it's growing increasingly tarnished. And as for being a Christian nation, the percentage of people who report themselves as being Christian, which, by the way, is far higher than the number of people who actually attend church regularly, fell 8% in seven years, from 2007 to 2014, and there's no sign that that trend is reversing in the last three years. And in that same period, the number of people who say they do not believe in God has nearly doubled. Globally, the center of Christianity is not America, if it ever was, and at least for Lutheran Christians, I don't know so much for other Christians, but for Lutheran Christians, the centers are in places like Ethiopia, Tanzania, Indonesia. Three out of the four largest Lutheran denominations in the world are in those three countries. And in fact, while at seminary, I heard stories of African churches sending missionaries to Europe, to the United States, because it is here that the church needs the support. Of course, as it was in Jeremiah's time, it's not popular to point these things out. I mean, look at the enormously uh, angry reaction that came when an NFL player performed what appeared to me to be a very restrained protest of a way this nation was not living up to its ideals. Now, my point's not to trash talk our country, for it is indeed a remarkable one, perhaps the greatest one that has ever been, but rather to make the point that it is not the chosenness of our nation that saves us, but the work of Jesus Christ for you and for me. If Israel's chosenness didn't prevent 70 years of Babylonian exile, then neither will America's chosenness ensure our success. But there is another echo of our time in the plight of the Judahites, and that is that theme of exile. For you see, as Christians, you and I live as exiles in the world. This is not our home, at least not in the permanent sense. And our citizenship here is transitory. Our citizenship is not first and foremost in any kingdom or nation of the world, but in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, a kingdom that operates not through force or violence, but follows its Lord to the cross. We are here in exile for a term of 70 or 80 years, more or less. And if we lose sight of our true home and identity, if we lose track of our Lord who walks with us, well, despair may overtake us as it did with some of those Judahite exiles. If we put our trust in the structures or governments or societies in the world, we will be terribly disappointed. For no matter how strong, how bright, how hopeful the nations or the causes or the movements of this world appear, they cannot ensure for us a future with hope. There's only one Lord who lives up to that promise. Now, you chosen exiles. Don't get me wrong. Don't take your status as exiles as an excuse to disengage 
with the community and the nation to which God has sent you. Rather, as Jeremiah writes, seek the welfare of the city where God has sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Use your citizenship here, temporary though it may be, as a tool to do the most good you can. Not because your life depends on it, but because your neighbors might. Help those in need. Be faithful in your vocations. Work to better your community and to make your nation the best it can be. Challenging where challenging is needed and defending when defending is due. And above all, know that your God has not forgotten you in your exile, but accompanies you, works for you, corrects you, and sustains you. For God knows the plans he has for you to give you a future with hope. Amen.